You are listening to World College Radio Day. Hi, I'm Chris. And I'm Johnny. Hi, I'm Guy. And I'm Will. We're from the band Coldplay, and we support College Radio Day. Hey, this is Sean Lennon, and I support College Radio. Estás escuchando el Día Mundial de la Radio Universitaria. Hey, everybody, this is Grace Potter. Thank you for supporting World College Radio Day. Salut, vous écoutez le Jour Mondial des Radios Universitaires. Hi, this is Jeremiah Freight from Lumineers, and I support World College Radio Day. Hi, I'm Alanis Morissette, and I support College Radio. But I won't do your homework. Please don't ask me. And I love college. This is World College Radio Day. Hey, it's John Andrasik from Five for Fighting. Happy College Radio Day. Welcome back. This is World College Radio Day 2022. John Andrasik, known by his stage name Five for Fighting, is an American singer-songwriter and pianist. He is best known for his piano-based soft rock ballads, such as the top 40 hit Superman, It's Not Easy, in 2001, 100 Years, in 2003, and The Riddle, in 2006. Andrasik has recorded six studio albums, one EP, and several live albums as Five for Fighting. Andrasik's song Superman was nominated for a Grammy in 2002. The singer has had songs featured in 350 films, TV shows, and advertisements. Earlier this year, Andrasik recorded a song called Can One Man Save the World in support of the Ukrainian people and its leader, President Volodymyr Zelensky. Todd Richards, the award-winning radio host of Top 30 Market Program Running Late at WBWC 88.3 FM, The Sting in Cleveland, talked with Andrasik and found out more. Can one man save the world in a thousand years? Will they say your name or is this all in vain? Can one man What a trip to uh, catch up with a man who's been providing a soundtrack for me and many others through some pretty amazing times and uh, some pretty amazing stories. Uh, and that's the best way I want to put it, because I want to ask him about some of his inspirations. The man behind Five for Fighting is joining us right now, and he's already had uh, quite the cool year uh, again through his songwriting this year. John, thanks so much for the time and all the great music over the years. Hey, Todd. Great to be with you. You do seem to be able to hit a nerve to a lot of people for storytelling, especially in the wake of 9-11 with Superman. And a um, hundred years, of course, is very, if I may be so bold, reflective um, on those things. I know you do other songs other than that, but the ones that seem to stick with people are, the, are these ones that are not only socially aware and sometimes, but obviously emotionally aware. Well, I've been very blessed, uh, as you mentioned, to have a couple songs that have stuck around for, for 20 years. I think uh, there's no real rhyme or reason. I try to just kind of write honestly. And you'll notice a lot of these songs are kind of post-it notes to myself. Uh, 100 years, we all know the sentiment, tr live in the moment, recognize the moment. There you go. You know, <laughs> something that is hard for me to do. And so... I think writing, it's not easy to meet me, 100 years, you know, the riddle, other songs, they really just talk about lives and us trying to do the best we can, knowing that we're not perfect and that at the end of the day, we're human. Folks resonate with that. And and the nice thing about music, as you know, because you live it every day, is 
people take songs and apply them to their lives in ways that have meaning to them. Right. It may be totally different than where I wrote it, but how people take Superman or hundred years and use it at a wedding or a funeral or an anniversary or a graduation. You know, that's why I really kind of fell in love with music in the first place. And, and to have a couple of songs that do that for folks is pretty humbling. I'm very grateful. Well, the song, you know, Can One Man Save a World came out in March and then it evolved. Yeah. And, and as I mentioned before we got started, I really caught on to it. The second version that came out, which was you actually recording with the Ukrainian orchestra in country, like at the battle zone. And I thought, that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's right. It's, it, it is totally, totally shockingly wake up call kind of thing. You know, I, that's the only way I could say it. It was like a lightning strike that, you know, this is still going on and it, you hear it every day and it just becomes complacent with this. Like, this is just one more headline we're used to hearing. You actually got to go there and talk to these people and share music together, which obviously is a unique gift in itself. But wow, can you please give me a little bit of background on how this whole thing came about? Well, it's interesting because you mentioned that when the song first came out in the early days of the war, I wrote Can One Man Save the World very quickly. It was when Zelensky was being hunted by Russian assassins. You might remember he said, I may not be here tomorrow. And many of us were so inspired by his, I think, heroic actions at the outset of the war. You might remember, you know, America's first act when the war started was to offer him a plane ticket. And he said, send me some Stinger missiles knowing very likely that not just he, but probably his wife and his children would be killed within days. And I think that really struck so many of us. We haven't seen that maybe since Churchill, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and when I wrote the song initially, it was kind of a desperate act. I, I was inspired, but I was also in fear that this guy may not survive the day. Right. And I've never put out a song piano vocal in my life. <laughs> but I, I literally wrote the song, recorded a take and put it out within 36 hours which as you know, in this business is pretty stupid. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I, I wanted the song out there and it did its thing. It's resonated a little bit, but it did find its way into certain circles. And I was going on tour with my string quartet and I wanted to play the song. So I was arranging strings for, for Come One Man Save the World. And I had a thought of maybe I should go to Poland. I'd seen the Polish orchestra doing some events Poland has been so amazing in this war, taking millions of refugees, their prime minister, the first person to stand with Zelensky and Kiev. So I reached out through some of the uh, NGOs I've been working with to Poland, and, and they said, let me get back to you. And long story short, they called back and said, how would you like to go to Ukraine and play this video with the Ukrainian orchestra? And I was stunned. I, I didn't know what to say. I, I thought for a minute they might be joking, but it was too serious, too serious of a, of a message and, and, a, and a moment. But long, again, long story short, they said, you know, the folks in the ministry appreciate it. And I thought it'd be a great way to put the spotlight back on Ukraine, as you said. And through a series of minor miracles, I was able to travel 48 hours, leaving my last gig in Indiana, you know, going to Amsterdam to Krakow, driving across the border, trying to find a car to, to Lviv, hopping on a train with a few American congressmen to Kiev, and, and then finding out that we were able to record basically due to Zelensky at, at this uh, bombed out airport with the symbol of Ukrainian independence behind us, the the Maria, mm -hmm. the largest cargo plane in the world that Putin destroyed at the beginning of the war. And we were so honored to do it because I think 
the Ukrainian people, the, the orchestra playing in front of this, this destroyed plane that Putin hoped would gut their will was very symbolic of the fortitude of the Ukrainian people. And as you said, to collaborate with them, to play with them, to have this collaboration between an American and, and the Ukrainians was incredibly humbling and powerful. And uh, it's still in its kind of infancy and and, and it is making a difference and, and driving some donations to these NGOs, but more importantly, keeping the focus on Ukraine and their fight for freedom. On a lighter note, since yeah. we're doing this in the in the shadow of College Radio Day, I thought I'd ask you, who's, as you've mentioned, been around for about 20 years now, still close enough in your career, you probably remember getting on College Radio and how important that might have been. Why don't you share that with me? Some of my greatest experiences, you know, when I first started coming out with music, Superman wasn't my first single. It was a song called Easy Tonight, actually. And it was actually a rock song. I wrote it on guitar. And um, it's very, of course, like so many artists, it was a struggle. And where did I start? You know, college radio, AAA radio, people that would play music they liked, <laughs> not that what they were told to play or not what the corporate radio told them to play. And back in the day, it was, you know, I, I just my heart grows when I look at your image sitting in the station with the CDs behind you. It reminds me of the days where people running radio stations love music and that radio stations were independent and they had people playing new artists. They weren't beholden to some of the corporate dictates of, of the folks we know who kind of dominate radio. And it's become so consolidated radio these days. It's, it's just so disappointing. But where do new artists have their chance? It's college radio. It's uh, it's AAA radio. And Easy Tonight was a number one song at these formats. Record company didn't care, but you know what it did? It allowed me to get to one more song, and that song was Superman. Without college radio, without AAA radio, we're not talking right now. And that's where musicians get their shot. And so I, you know, here we are 25 years later, and, and you know, I'm still grateful to folks like you, Todd, and your colleagues who introduce the world to new artists. Uh, that's that's the lifeblood of the music business. That's the lifeblood of our culture is the next wave. And and you guys are on the front lines of that. College Radio Day, thank you to all of your college, all of your colleagues at all the colleges that that do that, that listen, that find the next thing. And maybe not everybody goes on to become national artists, but they get to hear their song on the radio. And that alone for so many is... Uh, worth all the struggle that goes into doing what we do. So again, so you and all your colleagues, thank you. Happy College Radio Day. It's probably in my in my mind, one of the, the least understood, uh, but most important formats that we have. I just want to frame that right there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Todd. Thanks so much, John. Appreciate it. World College Radio Day. World College Radio Day. Hello to the world. Καλημέρα σε όλους. Εκπέμπουμε σοντανά από το ραδιοφωνικό σταθμό του Πανεπιστημίου Πατρών. Από την Ελλάδα σε όλο τον κόσμο. Για το World College Radio Day. Στον οφείλου διαμοντιάλ δας ράδιους ουνιφσιτάριας. Συνακούντελετ μαλμανόπις και την ραδιοφάιβα. World College Radio Day. You tuned in to World College Radio Day, a day where college radio stations across the globe unite to celebrate the most powerful medium. 
Based in France, Sarah Rogast works alongside a local church to serve the North African and Turkish background population in Europe by offering tutoring and language classes. She also works to raise up transformational peacemakers in conflict regions of the world. Earlier this year, Raga spent several days in Ukraine as an aid worker, bringing in critical aid and supplies to the people and plans to return later this year. Founder of College Radio Day, Dr. Rob Quick, also a professor of communication at William Patterson University, talked to Rogast about her experience. When did you realize that you wanted to get involved with what was going on in Ukraine? Well, early on in the conflict, you know, we started hearing of a lot of refugees moving out of Ukraine and into neighboring countries. And France is a bit further away. It's not directly bordering Ukraine. But we kind of figured that it was coming at some point. And so immediately we started collecting and sending supplies. There's a member of our local community who has been for several years taking supplies to Croatia. And so he just kind of transferred a bit and started taking supplies to Moldova and Poland and then eventually to Ukraine. And so he takes two or three trucks of things every month, sometimes more than a month more than once a month. And so he was looking for people to help drive. And because my schedule is fairly flexible, if I plan a little bit ahead, I was able to go. And so it was just a quick trip in May, four days. And we drove like 3000 kilometers. I don't even know how many miles that is. My conversions are terrible, but basically drove nine, 10 hours a day to stop at three different places, one in Poland and two in Ukraine to deliver supplies to contacts that he had there. So we were, from the beginning, looking to be involved. When you arrived in, in Poland, was that the first time you saw the influx of refugees, the people leaving Ukraine trying to escape the war? Yeah, we've, we've had a few families, just like four or five families in our local neighborhood that have come from, that had come from Ukraine at that point, but never in such numbers as we saw in Poland. We stopped at a church that had been, you know, it had been a huge church 40 years ago and kind of becoming smaller and smaller members wise. But then with this conflict, this huge building had been converted into housing 80 refugees. And so just like constantly people coming in and moving either further into Europe or back to Ukraine. And so we got to really see just how everyone's mobilizing all the resources that they had to house and yeah, just care for people who are, had been fleeing from Ukraine. It was powerful. <laughs> and what were you taking in with you? Food and, and basic supplies like that? Blankets and water, mostly like flour and milk and canned foods, things like that. And were those deliveries just for the people who were living in Western Ukraine or did you get a sense that any of it would be distributed eastwards towards the war uh, where it was happening? No, most of the places that we stopped, actually everywhere we stopped, they would take a portion, we would unload the whole truck. They would put a portion aside for their local community and then they started immediately boxing up the other supplies to send off to other connections further east in Ukraine. And so everything was being kind of distributed further in. How were you received by the people of Ukraine that you met and what were your impressions of them? They were incredibly welcoming and I think overly, <laughs> the the gratitude that they had and the generosity that they showed, I think was much more than we deserved. I think I think we, we received more in the hope that they were sharing. Just the, it was amazing to see how in Poland and in Ukraine, everyone 
gave everything they had to help the cause. The solidarity that was there and the the willingness to help their neighbor, help their even somebody who's a, a connection of somebody whose neighbor and you know these long may not even know the person, but through some thin connection, willing to take them into their home and share everything that they had with them. And just everyone helping one another for this common good. I think it's been a while since I've seen such generosity and willingness to help your neighbor from the whole community. I didn't talk with anybody who was just, you know, angry about the refugees. A lot of people were overwhelmed, but nobody was frustrated. And I feel like in my daily life, I I talk a lot with people who are frustrated over minor things and there was none of that. It was, it was all like, yes, this is hard, but it's worth it. And if I were in a worse situation, I would hope somebody was doing this for me. So everyone was willing to give whatever they had of extra. It was, it was really encouraging. (laughs) And what did you think about Ukraine as a place to visit? What did you think of its culture? It's probably the country where I have felt most at home in visiting. I mean, I've been in several countries in Europe and in Africa and South, like Central America and (laughs) Turkey. I think just culturally, it's close, very close to my ancestors. And I mean, to the point that I kept turning around and thinking I recognized people, but everyone was very open and welcoming and just It was really like what I would imagine if my country, if my state where I grew up found itself in a war, like that's how I would hope that we would react. But it was very much like everyday life, but willing to work for something more because they had to, (laughs) you know, like put into a situation that was very difficult, but making the best of it and doing all that they could to, to get through. What were your thoughts when you got back from the trip and what are your thoughts now? Yeah, my immediate thoughts were very much along the line of this is an issue that could happen anywhere. And I think sometimes before visiting, I had kind of the uh, impression that, you know, this was a problem over there for those people. But it really drove home how a war like this could happen anywhere and how it's everyone's problem. It's not just something that's happening far away. Do you have any plans to return to Ukraine? Will you be going back? I'm hoping to in October. I think I'll be helping drive on that one. So I'm hopeful hopeful to be part of another trip and to hopefully get to talk with some more people there because it's the sort of thing where you go in and we're taking this small amount of things, but I think more important is listening to stories and being willing to being willing to hear people so that they have have a place to kind of offload some of what they've experienced and just know that they're not alone. This is World College Radio Day. Omar Essek is the Strategy Director, Content and Business Development at Red Tech News in Portugal. His remarkable story includes fighting for freedom as a student in South Africa and using the campus radio station in the struggle against apartheid. He has since helped build market-leading, multi-ethnic media in a post-apartheid South Africa, but has never forgotten his early career experiences. 
Nicholas Wilkerson from William Patterson University's Brave New Radio interviewed Essek to hear his remarkable story. Talk about kind of what it was like a doing radio during the apartheid era and kind of growing up in that era where you know a lot of uncertainty and kind of limited resources and things like that. How were you able to kind of overcome those things? Yeah. So obviously, yes, it was a very challenging time. So even as we as students were having a lot of fun with uh, with our radio station on campus, it was in an unusual time because while we were at university, when there were protests and there were lots of them, you know, to try to, to win our freedom, to uh, rally to free Nelson Mandela, that was always a rallying cry for everybody across the country. The worst of apartheid that we experienced was actually at university. Because what would happen is uh, from time to time, we would have soldiers coming through to essentially intimidate students. And then the radio station changed from being a fun, entertaining thing, playing the latest music, the music that we all loved uh, on campus into a political tool to talk about the emergency. We were broadcasting and living at a time when there was a state of emergency in South Africa because the government of uh, the president, the, the prime minister at the time, P.W. Bota, uh, wanted to censor any news that uh, that started to talk about things that were really happening in different parts of our country, the violence, the intimidation, the killings. None of that was, uh, all of that was blocked out in, in newspapers at the time, and no radio station could broadcast it without being shut down or being intimidated. So we were, we were living through a time where we were young people, young people like young people everywhere. We really just want to have a good time and enjoy our studies and uh, those sorts of things. But we were also uh, facing a different threat that uh, not, you know, students in certain other parts of the world weren't facing, which is soldiers on our university campus coming in with uh, Caspers, coming in with uh, real ammunition, uh, intimidating us, uh, putting up barbed wire fences all over the place, uh, bringing on, uh, during the protest times, they would bring a certain type of vehicle where they would have a water cannon on it with a colored dye. So if you were part of the protesting group, they would be firing this so that it would stain your t-shirt so they can come and round you up afterward and beat you up. Uh, so those sorts of things were happening all the time wow. uh, during that period. And uh, so it was a combination. So the radio station ended up having a mul multiple purposes, one of which was, of course, just to entertain and and have fun and play the latest music and keep everybody, uh, uh, you know, sort of connected in that way as a community. But the other purpose, very important purpose that it had was uh, during specific uh, moments throughout our university year, our calendar year, there would be certain days that we would mark out, you know, obviously, you know, one of the most important being Youth Day, June 16, in South Africa, where we would, obviously, the station would turn into, from a music radio station, it would turn into a station that would teach you about that history. Mm. So all the presenters, we would play protest songs. Uh, incidentally, for example, the, uh, the Stevie Wonder was banned on radio stations in South Africa at the time wow. because of his... Uh, outspokenness and you, you you know the songs he sang about freeing Zimbabwe and so on we would play those songs so we would get we would find uh, bootleg copies of it and and, and play it uh, on campus but of course the campus also had what we call special branch spies at the time so you always knew that somebody was listening who would uh, rat rat you out and uh, some of the people who were, were part of the Student Representative Council would get uh, intimidated. I remember seeing a couple of uh, the people, the students who were part of the leadership there, taken out of their offices by gunpoint. Guns at their head, dragged to, uh, taken away to 
police headquarters uh, to be intimidated, beaten up, uh, threatened, essentially to get uh, people to comply. That was the way the uh, the weapons of the state worked, even in a on a university campus like ours. So nothing was immune to what was going on around us. And obviously, students, most students weren't aware that uh, this was happening because of all that censorship. But some did know, and those that did were the ones that... Um, that started to use, you know, the platform of the radio station to let others know that this was going on. And it was obviously a very difficult time because we were constantly being shut down as well. Right. And that's, it's truly amazing to be able to overcome all the adversity that you guys were going through at the time. You know, seeing your classmates getting taken out at gunpoint and different things like that, that had to, I'm sure, take a toll and kind of make you think. So kind of talk about personally for you, what drove you forward and kind of motivated you to continue even seeing you know the the government and and things like that try to hold you back what for you personally was it that helped you continue fighting the fight yeah i think the the one fortunate thing for people like me was that we were it we were growing up in the late 80s so while there was still this rampant uh, oppression and intimidation and uh, the threat of violence hanging over you we were also at the very edge, just as I was leaving university after my degree and my my postgrad teaching diploma, as I was leaving university in 1988, I've been teaching for a year, maybe two years, and then the talk was all about the fact that uh, Nelson Mandela would be freed. So had that not happened, I can tell you I would have had no career in radio. Were you more prepared, do you think, because you had that kind of college radio background? So were you more prepared to kind of get into the business and things like that? I was better prepared without a doubt because I knew I could do it. I mean, uh, which is one, which is the thing that inspired me to go and try out at, at, you know, at a professional radio station to look at it as a potential career. The fact that I'd worked on radio, college radio, campus radio at the time meant that I, firstly, I fell in love with it. I love the idea of, you know, just having a rapport with people, uh, talking about music. Uh, like most young people, we, you know, just adored the music at the time. Oh, yeah. And so I wanted to do something associated with that. And so this was the opportunity. So no question about it. Had I not done that, I wouldn't have been bitten by the bug so strongly to be, you know, to be inspired to try out and, and, and create a different career from being a teacher. Mm-hmm. That's how eventually I started. The theme for College Radio Day this year is Voices for Peace. And I think it's uh, fitting that we're having this conversation now, you know, with everything going on in the world and kind of seeing the role that students have had in the past with, you know, you and your station during the apartheid movement and kind of what we're seeing now with students building up with different movements that we see around the world. Um, So just a question for you, do you feel that when it comes to Voices for Peace, that it starts with the youth and it starts with students and kind of um, continuing with that? Without a doubt, without a doubt, the energy that uh, students in my time had inspired me. I wasn't a leading light. I wasn't somebody who was at the front of that struggle. I, I was. I wanted to be in radio, <laughs> and just watching uh, young people around me uh, managing that battle. You know, being inspired to join them, being led by people who knew what was going on much more than I did. I was still sort of subject to all the censorship around me, but there were people in our group who knew the reality and the truth of what was happening in the time. Those voices and the energy of youth, wherever there have been changes in society, they've been led by people who are energized by a better society, by a vision of a better society that can create. And young people are perfectly placed to, to lead that. 
Um, one of the things we do, one of the things we look for at the place I now work, Red Tech, we're always looking to hear the voices of young people and what they're doing in radio, what they're doing in audio on demand, podcasting. We're really interested in their stories. We want to feature those stories because our, our particular publication reaches over 20,000 radio and audio professionals around the world. We have big markets, obviously, in the US, UK, Canada, Australia, but also in India, in Malaysia, in Brazil, in Argentina. So young people who want to know about this business called radio, we do an inside podcasting feature where we feature podcasters who tell us how they got started, how they keep going. So there's lots of ways that if you want a career in this space, this is a great redtech.pro. That's www.redtech.pro. And you can learn about what's happening in the industry. It's a lovely way to get started. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for the invitation. Really appreciate it. We thank you for listening to this special broadcast on college radio stations throughout the world. The College Radio Foundation is grateful for the following organizations who have generously donated to the College Radio Fund and are official supporters for this event. Button Punks, official gold supporter. College Broadcasters Incorporated. Emissions Analytics. Jager Lumber. Hindenburg Systems. Live 365, official gold supporter. RCS Sound Software. Win OMT Software. Spinatron, official gold supporter, UTA Radio. For more information about the College Radio Foundation and World College Radio Day, please visit collegeradio.org. My name is Len O'Kelly, and I have had the pleasure of narrating this special program for World College Radio Day 2022. The program was produced by Rob Quick. Special thanks go to Todd Richards and Mary Cipriani for their help in making this program. Long live college radio.